just do a reminder to capture it for the podcast because we do have a lot of local people who listen and, and aren't able to make it on Sunday mornings necessarily. But we will have a sunrise service because there will be a sunrise. It may be rainy, and if so, we'll have it indoors. But we will have a sunrise service. It will start at 620. And if we time it just right, which we've been pretty good about, by the time we end up reading some of the story of that morning, the sun is coming up. And we'll spend a few minutes singing songs, and, and then we'll, we'll close with a prayer, and, and then we'll come inside or, or be inside and have a hot breakfast and, and have some time of fellowship. And then you can leave and come back, or you can hang out for a while, and I'll have the sanctuary open with some music if you want to just sit and relax. Um, or we'll have the tables in the back with food and fellowship. And at 10 o'clock, we'll have our normal um, worship service, which will be to celebrate Resurrection Sunday with communion and, and such. And I'm, I'm looking forward to it, not just because it's Easter, but I just love that when we fill this place with family and friends that may not otherwise be at church on Sunday. It's just a great opportunity to recognize the Lord, our Savior, for who he is and what he's done. But today is Palm Sunday. And I grew up in a church where the, the little kids would, you know, do the wave the branches and put it in the aisle. And it was very fun and, and all that. But, it, you know, Palm Sunday, and, and we may not always remember what it is, but, but we pause to recognize the moment when Jesus entered Jerusalem with all the fanfare and all the accolades of one who would save us all, right? He came into town as a hero, as a king, and people were just going crazy lining the streets, and in fact, let's listen to the account found in the Gospel of Mark 11, 1 through 10. It says, As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the ground, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead of those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. I want to pause here and talk about the word Hosanna. We consider it a sound of praise and perhaps we think of it as hooray, right? Hooray, hooray. But the translation actually has a far deeper meaning. The word Hosanna occurs just five times in the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and John, a couple times in a few of those. And as, as, as they cried, raised by the crowd, when Jesus entered Jerusalem on the first day of the week, ending with Passover and the crucifixion. Okay, this is the time, it's the only time that word is used in the Bible. And the term is simply a translation of the Hebrew word. Here we go, I haven't had to do Hebrew in a while. Hosa, which means save, save. And then they add, uh, add more to it uh, with the word nya, right? Which adds a note of urgency. So they're saying save now, save please. And the form hosanna, actually is not found in the Hebrew Bible, but the imperatives, hosa and hosa, without the other particle, please, occurs 29 times, okay? And it's addressed to deity, and this is why I'm sharing this, because this is an expression, even though it's not exact, the root of this is used 29 times, always to an addressed 
deity or, or royalty, and most likely in the Psalms. Okay? So this is a cry out to someone of power, someone of royalty for help and for saving, and not necessarily out of des- desperation, just out of an acknowledgement of what they can do for you. So the cry to save or to help is elemental, whether addressed to, to a mortal person or, or king or to God. You know, the long, emphatic form of the word occurs only once in the Hebrew Bible, and, and it's found in Psalm 118.25. And when I went back to Psalm 118.25 to, to read it in context, where does this close use of the same word end up? It fascinated me, and you'll see why. So here's Psalm 118. It begins with this, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, his love endures forever. Now, there's a lot of hymns and a lot of worship songs that, that have that. I will not sing them for you. You are welcome. But you can look them up. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Now we jump to verse 22, and it says, The stone the builder rejected has become the cornerstone. Now you're saying, okay, I've heard that before. We've talked about that in Bible study. We had that in in the scripture last week, and we were talking. We read this verse, and, and the statement's meaning will be further revealed as the church is built with Jesus Christ as the cornerstone. Because the stone that was rejected has become the cornerstone, and that is Jesus Christ. So I want to continue from Psalm 118. It says, The stones the builders have rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. Lord, save us. There is your Hosanna. Not hooray, but Lord, save us. But I've titled this Sunday message, Mission Possible. This morning, we're going to look at a little closer the mission of Jesus Christ. And then we're going to ask and answer a very important question about this mission. Would you put the scripture up? These are Jesus' own words recorded in Luke 4, verses 18 through 19. I'll leave them on the screen for quite a while. It says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Okay, That is the purpose of Jesus' mission. And we simply say this as he came to seek and save the lost. The salvation and the good news was and is directed toward every area of need. Poverty, need, problems, with, uh, that we face and, and, and all the stuff, all the stuff that we as humans face. By nature, we live separated from God. This is the result of our sinful nature and the choices we make. And so we live separated from God and he continually pursues us and we continually have to remind ourselves to stop what we're doing and turn and return to him. That is repentance. But we live with a great number of problems misfortunes and enormous amount of temptations. We all urgently and desperately need the good news of the love and the grace and the favor of of Christ. Jesus was convinced that his mission was possible because God had anointed him. He knows he could do it because God said he could do it. God equipped him just like God equipped you to do stuff. And then he anointed him with the Holy Spirit. says, I'm going to send a helper. By the way, it's the same helper we're going to get. So we're going to spend some time unpacking these two verses you see on the screen. So humanity has a problem with poverty. Well, what did Jesus do for the poor? 
He had compassion on a poor widow and raised her son from the dead because the son was the source of support for the widow's future. He healed the lepers who could return to the work. He condemned the rich who exploited the poor, especially those who exploited the widows and the orphans. And on the other hand, we see that he he praised the action of a poor widow who placed all that she had in the offering plate. And one commentary that I read on this pointed out that he did not prevent her from giving. He didn't say, don't do that. I know it's all you've got. And the Bible doesn't mention he gave her anything back now that she was without money. But we know that she was blessed and taken care of. But there's also a spiritual poverty and a moral poverty that comes when you have abandoned the wealth of the good that God has placed within you. And there are many who are materially poor, but they're often rich in faith. And I would argue the same. Some are very rich in faith, or rich in materials, but poor in faith. But listen to this passage from James 2, 5. It says, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? So perhaps you know someone with significant economic needs, yet they are rich in faith and progressing um, economically. They do not feel abandoned by God, but rather they feel very loved by God. They have true faith because they've learned to rely on him. And maybe you can count yourself among those type of people. If not now, at some point in your life, is you've had to rely on him when you didn't have the financial means to rely on yourself. Many of Jesus' disciples had few material possessions. In fact, many of them just gave them all up. In fact, consider Jesus himself and the Apostle Paul who just traveled with nothing more than what they had. They were not rich in, um, were they not rich in faith and believed in the promise that God would provide for their needs? And did not God provide for every single one of their needs along the way? And we're instructed to find and to know contentment. Now the problem of captivity, says he, could proclaim freedom for the prisoners. We often think of freedom for prisoners as, as Released from jail, right? In the Gospels, we not read Jesus freeing anyone from prison. I couldn't find a single story where Jesus went in and broke someone out of jail. He did not even give freedom to John the Baptist when he was in prison. Although he certainly would have had the power to do so. But in Acts, we do read somewhere who were miraculously set free from jail. So if Jesus' mission was possible, what prisoners would he free? Well, there's the prisoners of the devil, Jesus liberated many people who were possessed by demons. And today we may not think of this as a real threat, but we are assured that there is a spiritual battle raging still. How about prisoners of addiction and sin? Maybe you can count yourself among that. Why would I list addiction and sin? Because you can become addicted to things that are not in themselves sinful, but still serve to take time, energy, thought, and commitment away from the one thing that should be your focus, and that's God. Have you ever thought that maybe you are being held prisoner by some of the things that you love and hold so dearly? Jesus reminds us in, in John 8, 34, that anyone who sins, and that is all of us, is a slave to it. That's harsh, but it's absolutely true. He came to free us from those oppressions. He also came to free prisoners of, of possessions and, and, and wealth. Wealth prevented the rich young ruler from following Jesus, right? He's, he had so much to lose. You know, he'd done everything else right. But when Jesus said, give everything you have away, he said it made him sad because he had so much. 
You know, for many of us, money continues to be a great obstacle, hindering people to faithfully follow the Lord. Now, people misquote this all the time. Money is not the root of evil. It's the love of money that's the root of evil. God has given a lot of us an abundance of these things, and we share it. We share it in the offering plate. We share it with generosity um, and, and, and that. So, you know, it's just, it's a tool. But if you become so hung up on, on what it is and, and how important it is, that then if anything takes the place of God in your life and in your heart, it's not good. Jesus' mission was not only directed toward the poor, but also toward the rich. They need to be freed from the love of stuff. Here's one maybe you didn't think of. How about prisoners of tradition and legalism, right? I'm, I'm a creature of habit. I've got my ruts. I call them trends, but they're really ruts. The religious in Jesus' day were bound by the traditions and laws such that they could not accept the grace of Jesus Christ. They were so hung up on, on the thou shalt not so they couldn't see that there were things they should be doing and that they needed, they needed a savior because they were not fulfilling the thou shalt nots. Today, many believers believe that they can secure the salvation by observing religious traditions, you know. I go to church every Sunday, but do you know the Lord? You know, I pray regularly, great. <clears throat> You know, but are you doing, you know, the other things like the, the rich young ruler? There's so many parts that we should be doing. And I'm not saying any of us have it all mastered or any of us will, right? It's a faith journey. But remember, we sometimes look at these things as a, a box to check. Did I go? Did I do? Did I say? Did I give? You know what? God just wants a relationship with you. These are maybe barometers of that relationship, but he'd rather have you than your stuff. the problem of physically suffering. Now, this is the one we usually think of, right? Jesus took an interest in people's physical suffering and, and we have faith in our God that we can heal and we, we show this faith when we pray like we did not long ago for healing for our friends and our family and our neighbors. And sometimes he heals instantly, right? Miraculously. Sometimes it seems like it's a process. Sometimes he uses medicine. Sometimes he only removes the pain. Sometimes it's not his time to heal, and that can really trouble us. But he can, but we can and should cry out to him and trust in him for the relief from physical suffering. <coughs> and then there's the problem of oppression, right? He talks about um, set the oppressed free. You know, there are some that are socially oppressed, and maybe we're becoming more aware of this in recent history than, than in, in the past, but. But Jesus had compassion for outcasts like the lepers, right? He also reached out to those who were despised by society. I'm going to edit that one. I am, he was often despised by society like the woman at the well, the adulteress, the tax collectors. Now, maybe we don't identify with one of these specifically, but, but if, if, if there's a social disconnect, if you were a social outcast in some respect because you don't believe what the, the, the people around you believe. That's what he's talking about. You can be oppressed socially because of your views. And, and maybe we're coming to a time in history where we're being oppressed because we're, we're Christians and we believe that there's hope and good in the world that the rest of the world says, keep that to yourself. You're, you're infringing on my ability to believe anything else. But we still live in a society that judges and oppresses its members, sometimes because of their sin, right? 
That person's a sinner. Or their choices. I don't like the way they dress or their clothes or what they do or, or a destructive lifestyle that we just label and judge. Or others simply because they're different. See, Jesus saves us all from this kind of oppression by teaching and commanding us to love and respect one another. And when we do that, there is no oppression. And sometimes we're oppressed by difficult life experiences. You know, some are oppressed by the pain and the hurts of the past, right? A childhood trauma or abuse or a marital infidelity or a financial injury or the loss of a loved one. These things scar us. We call those moral injuries sometimes when we, when we experience that or we, we do something in, in the line of duty, for example, and, and it's wrong and it hurts us and we carry that with us. Others are oppressed by a debilitating fear or worry. And Jesus offers comfort and hope for the brokenhearted. Jesus offers peace and a life abundant for everyone. So let me ask you this as I start to wind down. Do you believe that you have been set free? That's what he came to do. Jesus came to seek you and to save you and to set you free. Scripture clearly says that the Son sets you free, which he has. You are free indeed. John 8, 36, remember that. If the Son sets you free, which he has, you are free indeed. Do you believe it? Do you live like you are free? Do you share this good news with others, especially those who don't yet realize it for themselves, that they have been liberated? Jesus' own words found in John 17, 18 says, As you sent me into this world, so I have sent them into the world. You know, we so often focus on the Great Commission, but, but here it is again. As, as God sent his son to do these things, he is sending us. God sent his only beloved son to this world. God and Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to this world. Jesus sent his disciples and us to go where? To the world. Now, some people would say Palm Sunday marks the high point in, in Jesus' ministry. And why would they say that? Perhaps it's because of the seemingly vast number of followers, the large crowd lining the street proclaiming him king and honoring him with their cheers and their pleas. Perhaps it's because that he had sought and saved so many of the lost, just like he came to do. Was this the high point of his ministry? If he were to die on that Friday and remain dead, then maybe that was the high point. But we know that's not what happened next. If his mission was to seek and save the lost, that moment that the number that he saved was at an all-time high, that would be the high point, right? The record, the best ever done. Then isn't it fair to say that every moment that includes the saving of another soul is the new high point of this ongoing mission? Every soul that you save, when you made your decision, you added yourself to that number, there's a new high point in Jesus' mission because there's one more soul saved and scripture says there is a multitude of angels celebrating up there. Think about this for a second. If Jesus came to preach the good news, which it was up there, it said the good news, and the good news was that God loves you and that there is hope and there is freedom, and then there's, and, and there's that good news. And then we have the good news of the Gospels, right? Which, which is a little new because now we have a Savior and he's come and he's hung on the cross and he's taking your sins with him and he's gone and he's come, you know, and now he's been born again and he's up in his Father, the right hand, and he's interceding on our behalf, right? And we pray in his name and his Father says, I know that person. 
I know that person. That person knows me. Let them in. That's the good news of the gospels. And so now we have more good news than even Jesus had to share. When a person casts a vision or a mission for an organization, whether it's for a business, a project, or a church, is intended to be both bigger and longer lasting than individual or individuals that work towards it. I found just a couple examples like Tesla, right? Everybody knows Elon Musk and Tesla says to accelerate the world's transition to sustainable energy. (coughs) Now, isn't that bigger than one man? Isn't that bigger than one company? That's a mission. The Alzheimer's Association, a world without Alzheimer's, simple, to the point, huge, huge mission. Isn't this something that'll take more time, money, effort, and other resources than those who first founded this organization? These are missions. They cast this vision. Teach for America. One day, all children in this nation will have the opportunity to attain an excellent education. Now, isn't that going to take all of us? Think about that. Jesus' mission was to come and save the lost. Man, that's a big project. But listen to the mission and vision of the three Christian denominations that helped plant this church 40 years ago. The Presbyterian mission's goal is to inspire, equip, and connect the church in three main areas, evangelism and discipleship, servant leader formation, and justice and reconciliation. Do you hear some of the same themes echoing? The mission of the United Methodist Church is to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. Do you hear it? Now, the disciples of Christ is a little bit longer. It says, we are disciples of Christ, so they're going with an identity, a movement for wholeness in a fragmented world. Now, do you hear that reconciliation in there? And then it goes on, as a part of one body of Christ, we welcome all to the Lord's table as God has welcomed us. Our vision is to be faithful, growing church that demonstrates true community, deep Christian spirituality, and a passion for justice. And our mission is to be and to share the good news of Jesus Christ, witnessing, loving, and serving from our doorsteps to the ends of the earth. And that's a little longer, but it's a lot of the same things that Jesus Christ came to do. Don't these words echo the words of Jesus Christ from Luke 4, 18 through 19? That is the mission, that is the vision that continues today. And he did a phenomenal job with his mission. And he did something even greater than that. He left a legacy of people to continue his work. This is what makes this mission possible. Every day, people are coming to know and accept Jesus Christ as a Lord and Savior through the efforts of people just like you and just like me assisted by Jesus' teaching and by the Holy Spirit. And I've left the words of the scripture on the screen during that message, but I want to read it again. Would you go back? I want to read this as a congregation, and I want you to hear this as if they're your own words, because they are. Let's read it. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Amen. That is our mission. That may not be the motto we use for our church or anything else, but that is our mission as Christians. Now let's close with prayer and let's make that our prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the wonderful gift of your son who came to lead to teach, to inspire, and to commission us. He came with a mission that is so important that it will take the rest of eternity to complete. 
Lord, we know that neither you nor he nor the Holy Spirit will rest until there is not one person in this world that does not know and accept you. Lord, this is a big task. And we thank you that it didn't end on that Good Friday. Lord, we thank you that the peak of of this mission wasn't Palm Sunday when people were cheering him on and praising him. Lord, we thank you that this very minute decisions are being made and this is the new peak. And now there's another one and another one as people continue to come to you. Lord, let us accept this calling and this challenge. You laid it before us 2,000 years ago and that mission is alive and well and still possible today. Inspire us, encourage us, and, and help us to fulfill it. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.